Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Eli Confer, filling in for Rabbi Avi Killip. At this auspicious time of year, we strive to reinvent ourselves through tshuva. In his drasha, Return, Ascent, and Bloodied Wings, how tshuva can help us transition to what comes next, Rabbi Michael Rosenberg considers a different vision of repentance, one that allows us to maintain a look back while leaping ahead. Let's listen in. Here we are, standing on the cusp of 5782. A year ago this time, we were communally in the depths of despair. For some of us, the worst had already come the previous spring and early summer. For others, that autumn was itself the nadir of our experience, as our personal and communal losses were compounded by the spiritual loss of no other. As we celebrated Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur alone, or if you were lucky, with your family at home, or perhaps for those fortunate enough to be in communities able to support such measures in backyard minyanim. I must admit that when I began thinking about this drasha earlier in the summer, I imagined a more optimistic tone. It seemed like we were really heading out of this pandemic and back to something like normalcy. But now, in late Elul, our situation is murkier. Depending on where you live and your personal risk aversion, you might indeed be feeling like life is getting back to normal. But just as likely, you may find yourself returning to the measures that we thought we were moving past. In some ways, the hardest part of this phase of whatever it is we've been doing is that murkiness, not really knowing where we are. But we do know, or at least we hope, that we're in some kind of moment of transition, a movement from what was, from where we are, to where we hope we are going. And so I want to think with you tonight about what it might look like whenever we move from this stage of our collective history, what it might look like actually to make such a shift. I want to think about that question in advance of Rosh Hashanah because that is in a fundamental way what this whole season of repentance, of tshuva, is about. At its core, tshuva is the work we do to move from a place we don't want to be, a place where our insecurities and our fears push us to act in ways that are beneath us, to the place that we long to be, a place in which we are more fully living out our ideals and commitments. Tshuva provides a model for how we might transition from the unredeemed state we're in to a redeemed world, or at the very least, a more redeemed world. But what is tshuva, and how does it work to move us from one place to another? How does tshuva get us from here to there? I want to think with you tonight about three distinct models of tshuva. Each model presents us with different ways of thinking about our past, present, and future, and each model challenges us to think about what it means to improve and transform ourselves. The first model is rooted in the very term itself. The word tshuva comes from the Hebrew root for return. Although tshuva then is a movement, it is counterintuitively a movement backwards. To return is to turn back. 
Consider how Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook describes it. He writes, the primary tshuva, that which immediately lights the darkness, is when a person returns to their self, to the root of their soul. We are, Rav Cook tells us, returning to where we already were. Tshuva in this model is not an act of making progress. It's rather a motion of undoing. It's actively peeling off the layers of ethical muck and spiritual decay that have glommed onto our beings and getting back to the who that we used to be. The beauty of this approach to tshuva, I think, is clear. The work is serious, to be sure, but it is not a journey into uncharted waters. It does not ask me to be someone I never have been. Rather, I'm simply asked to return to who I am, to who I, in truth, always have been. Like I imagine many of you, I have spent so much of the last 18 months longing for this kind of tshuva. When can we just go back? When will things be the way they were? Back before the stain of COVID, before the distortions of this pandemic. But when we stop to consider what that might actually mean, it's not as appealing as it initially seems. Do we really want to go back to how things were? Were we really so happy with how we treated ourselves and each other? Were we so successful in our attempts to be present for friends and family while working insane hours that we can't wait to get back to our old schedules? Were the business trips and conferences we attended so transformative that we want to return to the global costs of travel en masse? The dystopia that has been the last year and a half may cast a rose-colored glow on our pre-pandemic lives. But I suspect I'm not alone in realizing that tshuva, in the sense of return to how we were before this breach, is not what I'm actually looking for. Perhaps that's why the Rambam, Maimonides, describes the process of tshuva in terms that have nothing to do with the meaning of the word. Rather than defining tshuva as a backwards motion, the Rambam describes the kinds of acts that tshuva demands. Among other things, the Rambam says, the person repenting should, quote, distance themselves from the matter in which they sinned and change their name, as if to say, I am another. I am not the person who did those things, and change all of their actions going forward for the better. The late 20th, early 21st century thinker in Rosh Hashiva, Rav Shagar, points out that here and elsewhere, when the Rambam talks about tshuva, he completely ignores the past. There's no sense of return here, even in a partial sense to what was. Rather, the person who wants to improve, the Baal Tshuva's orientation is entirely future-facing. How can I change my life to be the kind of person I want to be, irrespective of the failure I may have been until now? The past cannot be changed. Therefore, I need not relate to it, let alone strive to return to it. Rather, for the Rambam, the only question that matters is, what now? I want to note two critical consequences of the Rambam's future-facing tshuva. The first is the rejection of regret as a religiously meaningful emotion. 
Consider how Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik describes the difference between other religious models of repentance and his own understanding of tshuva, very much in the, in the uh, path of the Rambam. The former model, other models of repentance, Rav Soloveitchik writes, view repentance only from the perspective of atonement. A deep melancholy affects his spirit. He mourns for the yesterdays that are irretrievably past, the deeds that have vanished like shadows, the fact that he will never be able to change. But such is not the case with halachic man, says Rav Soloveitchik. Halachic man does not engage in weeping and despair, does not lacerate his flesh or flail away at himself. Halachic man is engaged in self-creation, in creating a new I, a new sense of self. There is no point longing for a past that will never again be, nor in regretting the mistakes that we made in that past. Rather, for the Rambam and his followers, we think about what we will do now going forward, what world we will build, what version of our own selves we are creating. That's a vision of repentance that, for me at least, is at one and the same time appealing and unrealistic. Now, probably the Rambam would say that this is only a result of my own weakness, but I at least am not able to break so fully from the past as to feel no emotions of regret, nor do I know that I would want to. But I want to consider the second major consequence of this shift in thinking about tshuva, because for the Rambam and his followers, critical to the process of tshuva is that you simply can't move forward when you're looking backwards. Or to be more precise, you can't truly assess and therefore reject your past mistakes until you've already become the person you want to be. So long as you are lingering in your past behaviors, then all you can ever do is make tweaks here and there. Without radical change, without a personal paradigm shift, you're always viewing your past self with your past eyes. Only when you truly make the break and become someone new, can you look back on your actions and say, that was wrong. I understand why I did it, and I now have the insight to be better. That, according to Rav Shagar, is why the Rambam cites as the source for the process of tshuva, the penultimate verse of the Haftorah that we will read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. V'acharei shuvi nichamti. After I returned, I regretted. You can only truly regret your past actions after you've done tshuva, once you've become the person you want to be going forward. The Rambam's insight to tshuva makes clear that we cannot assess our pasts, whether we're thinking about our own individual flaws, the pre-pandemic past, these last 18 months. We cannot assess those pasts without first breaking free of that past, without first deciding who we want to be going forward and what we want the world to look like, unchained by our previous habits of mind and body. Otherwise, the new world we build will always be tied down by the old one. It will never be more than a simply improved, than a slightly improved version and not a true break with the past on our way to redemption. Now, I've already said that for me, and I imagine others, the Rambam's rejection of regret makes his vision challenging, if not impossible, to accept fully. 
it's also worth lingering over another negative consequence of the Rambam's sense of tshuva. For the Rambam, what happens to the old you, the person who actually did do that thing in the past? The Rambam articulates a vision of tshuva that demands the destruction of your past self. Now, let me say right away, the Rambam's vision of tshuva in no way, shape, or form advocates literal violence toward one's own self, God forbid. It does, however, in symbolic and metaphorical ways, require the undoing of one's previous sense of self. It is therefore a model that endangers our psyches. It also sets an impossibly high bar for what it means to do better. We cannot, in truth, utterly separate the who we want to be from the who that we've been. The Rambam's model of tshuva asks us to shed parts of ourselves that, however imperfect, make us who we are. And so we're stuck. A return to how we were turns out not to be all that desirable. A movement to something completely new, radically disconnected from our past, is impossible and dangerous. Now, typically at this point in one of my high holiday sermons, I move at this point to a middle path, a compromise, let's say, between tshuva as return and tshuva as radical destruction and rebuilding. In this case, that compromise might sound something like the Democrats' slogan back in 2020, build back better. But to be honest, that's actually a fairly par vision that says, let's get back to where we were, but just with some tweaks. The third path that I actually want to lay before you tonight is not a compromise. It's not a mix of Rav Cook and the Rambam, a mix of some return and some progress, but rather a different vision entirely of what it means to come out of and through trauma. The details for this third way of thinking about tshuva come from a perhaps unexpected source. The sacrifices that a mitzorah, somewhat afflicted with a trauma-inducing kind of disease, must bring following their recovery as part of their ritual purification. Now, on their surface, these laws are not about tshuva. They're about ending ritual impurity. But the rabbis understood the Mitzorah's disease to be a reflection of spiritual failing. Exiting that physical state is then yet another kind of spiritual repair. The Mitzorah's purification process also gestures toward tshuva by echoing in important ways the rituals of Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16 describes how the high priest on Yom Kippur takes two goats. One is slaughtered as an offering to God. The other becomes the scapegoat, sent out to the wilderness to bear Israel's sins. Keep that in mind as I read to you the Torah's description for the Mitzorah's purification. The Torah says, the priest shall command that two living clean birds and cedar wood and crimson yarn and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be made pure. The priest shall command that one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in an earthen vessel. He shall take the living bird with the cedar wood and the crimson yard and the hyssop and dip them and the living bird into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He shall sprinkle it seven times upon the one who is to be cleansed of leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce them clean 
and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. Like the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Mitzorah must bring two of the same kind of animal. And as on Yom Kippur, one of these is killed while the other one is sent out, in this case, into the open field. But unlike on Yom Kippur, this ritual has an additional wrinkle because the goats of Yom Kippur represent two radically distinct fates. One is sent to God, the other carries our sins into the wilderness and never the twain shall meet. But the Mitzorah's birds are intertwined and interdependent. The priest takes the living bird and dips its wings into the blood of the slaughtered bird before sending it out to the open field. The ritual is bizarre. I mean, imagine taking this living bird, which presumably is not going to be so accommodating, gripping it firmly enough to dip its wings into the blood of its slaughtered sibling, and only then sending it off to fly away. Years ago, I heard a life-changing interpretation of this seemingly insensible ritual from my teacher, Rabbi Gordon Tucker. The following are Rabbi Tucker's words, quote, not to be able to fly after an encounter with death gives death the victory and death cannot be allowed to ground life. But to fly away unscathed is not to conquer death, but rather to ignore it. It is to be untouched by it, to be untaught by it. Rather, says Rabbi Tucker, it is precisely the birds that travel to and through the skies with those stained wings who are the wisest birds in the world. That is to say, the blood-stained bird that flies away on to live their life, but always forever marked by the blood of the slain bird. That bird makes exactly the journey that the Mitzorah themselves must make, not to ignore the past, but neither to be chained to it. As with the Rambam's vision of tshuva, the brush with death, the experience of trauma, changes you forever. And yet, the blood on the wings does not deprive this bird of its prior identity. It is not a completely new creature, as the Rambam might desire, nor is it what it once was, as Rav Cook described. It is rather a being transformed. Such is the kind of transition that the next months and years will demand of us. If we try simply to return to how things were, then we will have learned nothing from this experience. And at the same time, if we allow this communal experience of trauma to undo everything about who we are and who we have been, then we cede our autonomy and become nothing more than a cluster of fundamentally fickle, unstable identities. Our challenge is to figure out how to continue the lives we had before, even as we stare constantly at the bloodstains on our very own wings, the marks of those we've lost and of those whose lives are forever changed by their brush with COVID, the marks of the communal breakdowns of the last two years and of the realization that we are not all speaking the same language, or even living in the same reality. We will come out of this experience with blood-stained wings.
and we will also fly. Shana Tova. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Analia Burstein-Simpson, and Susan Polevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chabinsky. I'm your host, Ellie Confer. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.